Welcome to Mediation Playbook, the podcast that provides winning negotiation strategies. Join us as we explore the world of holistic negotiation from experts across business and industry. Our guests will share with us their insights and draw on their experiences to provide you the techniques and tools you need to become a master negotiator. Now let's get started. All right. Welcome to Mediation Playbook, everybody. And I'm your host, David Cower. I'm here with Rebecca Morrison, better known as Becky, an old friend of mine, who is going to be talking about happiness as a lifestyle. We're here today to discuss wellness broadly, but also in the context of what that means for someone who's in a stressful situation, such as a mediation or another high stakes negotiation. Welcome to the program, Becky. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me. I'm excited to do this. Great. Excited to to have you on as a guest. So, Becky, do you want to talk a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today career-wise? And feel free to mix in a little bit about how we know each other. Sure. I was going to say that the missing link to what (laughs) makes my story interesting is that we know each other from law school. We were in the same small section first year at at one of the largest law schools in the country. So lucky that we met there and have known each other since then. Sometimes it feels like the blink of an eye and other times it feels like as long as it really is. But <laughs> but when I tell people that I'm a lawyer turned happiness coach, right, like there's some natural like, um, excuse me, what now? Sure. That comes with that. And so just a, a little bit about my story. I graduated from Georgetown Law with Dave and a whole bunch of other people and mm-hmm. then went on to be a litigator at a big law firm and then made a shift into sort of a hybrid administrative legal role in another large D.C. law firm. So I was in D.C. big law for over 15 years and then left the legal world entirely to go and work in the world of finance and investments for a brief stint uh, and then found myself at a crossroads and decided that I would get into coaching. But to understand kind of why coaching, you need to go back to the beginning. And I don't mean the beginning Mm. of my life, but the beginning of my professional journey, which was I found myself, I tell this story, I call it my bathtub moment, and it's not what it sounds like. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I I found myself one night, I was probably two years in or two or three years into being a litigator. I was married. I had a toddler daughter and I found myself one night sitting on the floor of the bathroom, toddler in the tub, cordless phone clipped to the back of my pants. And I was doing two things. I was bathing my toddler because my husband who at the time worked in counterterrorism, had been called into work because something in the world blew up. And I was on a call with our expert getting them ready for an upcoming trial. So Mm -hmm. you can imagine this scene. I've got the toddler in the bath. I've got the cordless phone clipped to the back of my pants. I've got the paper spread all around me. I've got the toilet seat cover down. I'm taking notes on the notebook, you know, perched on the toilet seat cover. As I kind of wrapped up that call, I had two thoughts in quick succession. The first thought was, well, man, like who says you can't do it all, right? Like (laughs) here I am. I'm a, I'm a mom. I'm, you know, part of the bedtime routine with my toddler. I'm killing it at work. I'm definitely at that point on partnership tracks, feeling really good about how things are going and enjoying substantively the, the litigation work that I'm doing. And then the second thought was, and I'm exhausted and I'm not sure if I'm happy. Yeah. And so that led me sort of down this road for the duration of my career until today really thinking about what do we need to do to balance these two compete, sometimes competing factors of what I'll call happiness and success. Yeah. I think what's great about that story is it's a, it's an illustration of kind of the standard 
understanding, I think that we, you know, that, that, that seems to be a, a continuing narrative in our society, right? Amongst professional women of expectations, both in the home and professionally. But I know from our conversations, you've worked with a number of men as well, where those particular expectations may not be present, but certainly others are. Do you notice uh, a dichotomy there or is it more just in terms of the nature of the pressures? I think I would say it's more just everybody brings their own set of pressures, but I would say the theme mm -hmm. is similar, right? It's like what really matters to us versus the shoulds that we've been told should matter to us. And how do we reconcile mm -hmm. those two things? And, you know, the way I would describe most of the people that I work with in the one-on-one -on -one coaching context, not exclusively, but the, the bulk of them are people who have done a lot of the things that we would think of as making us objectively successful, right? They've got the good jobs. They've got the high achievements. They've got the high paycheck. And yet they're sort of like, wait a minute, I thought if I did all the things, then I would be happy. Where did I get off track here? Why am mm. I not enjoying this life as much as I should, given how hard I've worked to have all of what I have? I think to answer your question more directly women, men, kind of irrelevant, right? Just how are we, what is it that we think that we are missing or, and what is it that we think that we are, that we should be doing and how do we resolve that tension? Yeah. It sounds almost like it's something where it's supposed to be formulaic, right? I get the right degree. I get the right job, mm -hmm. get married, have the house, you know, the white picket fence, the 2.1 children, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Then the equation is going to equal out to happiness, mm -hmm. and it turns out they're completely unrelated. Yeah. Well, it turns out that that happiness, I mean, the way that I say it, sort of the one line that I say that in is happiness, in fact, is not a result of our success. It's a driver of our success. Mm. And we walk through life, most of us, believing, and it's sort of, I could go deep into the history of happiness, but it has a natural, there's a reason we think this way. But we walk through life believing that if we do all the right things, happiness is the result. And that's just not that's not the equation, actually. Right. Happiness, mm -hmm. living happier, having more happiness in our day to day actually makes us more successful, not the other way around. Hmm. That's interesting because it kind of flips the notion, the traditional notion on its head. It surely does. What is it that we can be doing to be focused on happiness then? What is the way to, to turn that about and yet be able to do the things that we need to be doing to live our lives. Yeah. The other two pieces that you need to know about me, in addition to the fact that I'm a lawyer, are that I have an executive coaching certification from UC Berkeley and mm -hmm. a certification in applied positive psychology from the Flourishing Center. And so it's that second mm. piece, that applied positive psychology piece, where a lot of the tools and sort of structure live in the way that I approach. How do we incorporate or how do we discover how to have more happiness in our lives today? And the biggest thing I'll say kind of in response to what you just said, because you asked a big question, right? We could spend the next three hours talking about how do we do this, right? Sure. But, but I think the thing I want to say is to recognize, I think we, ha again, have this notion that our happiness is dependent on our circumstances, but the science tells us that's actually not the case. The bulk of our happiness, there's a mm. big chunk of our happiness, in fact, half of our happiness is a result of our daily thoughts and actions. And so that's hmm. the work I do is in that half of the pie where we can have real influence. It's how do we think about the way we're showing up? How do we build high quality relationships? How do we change our mindset to be more positive? How do we work with our natural neurological programming and recognize that there are certain ways that we are wired that might set us up not to be as happy day to day? So we have to intentionally 
look at the world differently and not default to our kind of operating system that we came with. Does that make sense? Hmm. There's a lot in there too. So it's almost like it's certain techniques or tools to use on a, on a daily basis because it's adjusting your mindset in part, mm -hmm. but also your understanding of circumstances. Is that correct? You got it. And your reaction to circumstances, right? The world of positive psychology is broken down to, into a couple dimensions. And so I'll just run okay. through the dimensions just to give you the scope. Please. Positivity, mm -hmm. engagement, meaning, relationships, achievement, and vitality. Vitality is everything physical, physical wellness, right? So mm -hmm. that's all the things I think when we traditionally think about wellness, we're thinking in the vitality space. Am I physically healthy? Am I exercising? Am I eating right? Am I sleeping? All of that. Mm -hmm. The other stuff is the stuff that I think we aren't as intentional about all the time. And it's how do we manage our emotions? How do we, that's the P, the positivity. How do we manage our emotions? How do we inject more positive experiences into our day when we have a choice to do that? How do we, again, work with our, I'll call it our neurobiological programming? I think, you know, you're asking a big question, but where I like to play is in the more like you said, the more day-to-day, -day, like what can I do every day that will change the way that I'm looking at the world? And or what can I do every day that will change the quality of my connections and my relationships? I like to play in that space of the real concrete, simple things. So bringing that back then to kind of the focus of our podcast here, it seems like managing those relationships in a way that is focused on encouraging positive psychology is mm -hmm. going to be the most useful method for bringing wellness about through negotiation. What I'm trying to say in a different way is that by rather than necessarily finding the focus of relationships as conflict, mm -hmm. which I feel is a lot of what litigation as an industry focuses on and trying to turn every relationship into a situation for a winner or a loser. Instead, if we focus on how can I take this immediate task and bring about benefit for myself and perhaps others, right? Because I don't want to cross over into a land of ridiculous where I'm going to be giving away value in a negotiation for the sake of everybody hugging it out. Correct. But to maintain that focus and appreciation that the value we're going to get from this negotiation, from reaching a deal, from reaching a settlement, whatever the end goal is, mm -hmm. is not going to be further driving the animosity and negativity, but rather leading to positivity. Yeah. I mean, and I think the way I, I think you said it, that's a lot of great things in there. And the way I would summarize it is, right, like instead of approaching, particularly a negotiation, as something mm -hmm. that has to be adversarial, if we can approach it from the perspective of connection and collaboration mm -hmm. and use some really specific tools to do that, both, I think, I mean, I think about it as lawyers, like both with our clients and then with the other party, mm -hmm. I think we can get a lot closer to where we want to go in terms of an outcome that is as beneficial to everyone as possible. So what are some of those specific tools that we could use? I mean, I think one that you and I have talked about before and one of my favorite is obviously empathy, right? Mm -hmm. I think what I want to say is, you know, empathy gets a lot of lip service, but I, I think mm -hmm. often people don't truly understand the power that is in it. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about two types of empathy. I want to talk about first 
the empathy that we feel for someone else when they're struggling or hurting. When we can look at somebody else and say, I understand it must be hard. Even if I've never been in the situation, even if I don't agree with how you've handled the situation, I can mm -hmm. see the humanity in you and the experience you're having, and I can appreciate that, th that it might be difficult. I think as lawyers, we often have an opportunity to give our clients that empathy when they come to us in a mm -hmm. difficult situation, whether it's a corporate kind of engagement or an individual engagement, litigation is stressful. Nobody wants to be in litigation or conflict. And so just taking a moment to recognize the sort of humanity and emotions that are present can be really powerful, both to diffuse them, but also to create connection like on a relationship level. Being seen as the most powerful connection creator. Mm -hmm. The flip side of that empathy is also empathy in the positive. So empathy when things are going well. Empathy when we come to an idea, we, when we figure out what it is that we really want, we want to take a minute and celebrate that. We want to take mm -hmm. a minute and recognize, oh, it looks like that feels like a really good solution to you. Like your whole body language changed. You're mm -hmm. lighter. You're smiling. Like, that's great. Let's talk about like why this is a good thing for you. Let's dive into it a little bit more and feel it a little bit more deep deeply. And I think it sounds weird to be talking about that in the context of legal proceedings, but the mm -hmm. power of acknowledging the presence of emotions in creating connection, which then allows us to create a positive experience, which allows us to create a broadening problem-solving mindset, which is what we need, right? Right. That's, right. that's why we do these things, right? It's because yeah. building that connection will put us in a better place to actually build trust and get what we need either, again, from our clients or from the other party, and also puts us in that place of seeing the world in a broader way and not just being stuck in the problems. Part of what part of what you're talking about actually sounds like digging deeper into an old trick in negotiations or, or mediations, more precisely, where you go to the party and you ask them to put themselves in the shoes of the other side or one of the other parties, right? And okay, if these were your circumstances, what would you do? And of course, there's always the immediate reaction. I would never be in those circumstances. I would never have done this. They're a complete idiot, whatever the case may be, right? Yep. You get over that hump and then they start to think through what the options actually are for the other side. And there's, there's a strategic value in that as a mediator, because what I'm doing is having them think about what are acceptable responses. Okay. In other words, a, I win, you lose offer is not going to be acceptable. Yep. There has to be, if it's somebody who's in a situation where saving face is going to be important to them, yep. then that I win, you lose offer is not going to work. Yes. So why are we going to take the time to make that offer? Yes. Right. Yes. Let's think about what are offers that can actually be accepted. Okay. That's a very practical, strategic piece of it. Yep. What you're talking about seems a little deeper in that it's going beyond that and saying, now also understanding what you can get from that. Because what that means is on a practical level, by making an offer that's reasonable, that's going to actually be capable of being accepted. I'm going to get a deal out of this. And by getting a deal out of this, I'm going to benefit, right? Mm -hmm. My life is going to be easier. I'm going to remove this conflict. Presumably, you're someone who's not thriving off of that conflict, right? Most, most people, right? Yeah, most people. Most don't, but there are some. We, yes. I mean, we can talk about that in a moment. Yeah. <laughs> too. Yeah. So there's that practical level of it, but there's also 
the personal benefit level beyond your practical benefits, but in terms of just having a, 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 a little lighter, it's, it's a relief. You know, I, I was talking earlier with someone about one of, one of my favorite parts of a mediation is towards the end when we've reached a, a settlement and you're having that conversation. I know you've been in, you've been involved in litigation in a variety of contexts. You're familiar with the scene. Yes. Right. You're yep. in that mediation room. The mediator is now there presenting an offer that is capable of being accepted. Mm -hmm. And there's a moment of realization where, you know, in, in my head, kind of the gears are shifting and mm -hmm. realizing, oh, this, this could actually settle here. Yes. Right. And people have different physical reactions. Some control their responses better than others. But I have seen where there are those who actually physically exhale and you can see almost the release mm -hmm. of the stress in a physical form, right? And when that happens, there's like endorphins are released yes. almost. Yes. I don't know, perhaps I don't they know which I don't are. know which of the brain chemicals, yeah. but there's clearly something, there's something happening there. That is like, I'm no longer in danger. I'm going to yeah. be able to live with yes. this outcome. Like maybe yes. it's not my first choice. Maybe my first choice would have never been to have been in this room. But given that I had to be in this room, wow, like we got to a place I can live with. Yes. Phew. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And the, and there's a, there's a happiness, even though mm -hmm. we know, you know, the lawyers still have to write up the agreement. They still yeah. have lots of work to do you keep people together and kind of sequestered until that until it's all that, papered yeah absolutely. exactly but that papering process is some of the happiest that you'll see of yeah. clients yep because they're not working on the papering yes they're now just kind of basking yes in it in that moment yes and that is another opportunity as somebody who has a relationship with a client to connect with them in this empathy space, right? Of, mm -hmm. hey, I can see that you're relieved. Isn't it great? Isn't it great that we got to an outcome that you can live with? Or maybe you're even happy about, I'm really pleased with how this turned out. Tell me how you're feeling about it. And it's an opportunity to, I don't want to say manipulate because it's not manipulation, but to genuinely show up human to human and mm -hmm. build a connection and build on a relationship that might serve you in the future. That's interesting. How do we get more of that earlier on in the process? Is there a way to do that, to have it, or, or is the adversarial nature of the dispute, does it require that we be constantly pitted against one another throughout the process? I actually, I mean, I might be, and this might be unpopular opinion, but I don't think it has yeah. to be so adversarial. I don't. Okay. I think we're humans dealing with humans and the more we can bring our humanity forward in the form of empathy and other techniques, the more we can really create a space where our brains can allow us to be more collaborative. Because what's happening when we're adversarial is it's a reaction to feeling unsafe on some level, mm -hmm. right? It's a reaction to feeling threatened on some level. And so mm -hmm. if we can alleviate some of that threat and recognize, look, neither of us really want to be sitting here. Nobody wants to be in this conflict. We probably all want a resolution of some sort. We might want different resolutions, but we can agree that we're working towards a common goal of actually resolving this. I think the more we can sort of set those boundaries so that we remind ourselves that we are humans working with humans, 
who want a positive outcome. We don't actually want to fight. We just feel like we have to fight because we feel threatened. The other technique I think we can use, and you and I have talked about this before too, is really shifting our clients and ourselves from a mindset of complaint, like what's wrong, into a mm -hmm. mindset of request. So there's a mm -hmm. saying that, that I hear often and I use often that under every complaint is an unmet need. So when I come to you and I say, I'm so frustrated. Can you, can you say that one more time? Sure. Just I want to make sure we get that. Yes. Yeah, so under every complaint, and this applies mm -hmm. not just in mediation or negotiation. This applies when you're listening to your kids at home. Under mm -hmm. every complaint is an unmet need. Like That's, pow that's powerful in a number one. of ways. Yeah. So then I think like now taking it back to this context where we're talking, it's like, how do we help our clients identify their actual needs versus just their complaints. And then how do we use those needs to architect the solution? Right. How do we learn from the other side what mm. their needs are, not just their complaints, so that we can architect a solution, like you said, that will be acceptable to them too? Right. Because it's the solutions that are the reasons that clients will then rave about an attorney yes. in the future. Yes. That's how you get future business, not just he or she really fought for me. Oh, well, how did it go? Well, you know, of course, win, lose the case, whatever. But you can win a case and still lose that overall. relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No. And I think, you know, for me, it's interesting. I've had a couple of clients come to me. I told you this offline recently. Mm -hmm who were preparing themselves, they were clients in an upcoming either litigation or mediation. And they came to me not because they wanted legal advice, but they mm -hmm. came to me because they wanted some coaching on how to get themselves in the right mindset for that experience to help them figure out what is it that I actually need from the outcome here? How do I communicate that to my legal team? And how do I show up on the day of mediation or testifying or whatever, and be clear in what it is that I'm asking for. And I think as lawyers, you know, there are lawyers out there clearly, I think, who are doing that. But I think as mm -hmm. lawyers, if you're not doing that, it's a real missed opportunity because that, like to your point, that's how you get raved about. This mm -hmm. lawyer got me what I needed. Mm -hmm. Not just I won my case. They got me the win right. I needed. What are some of the ways that attorneys or others who are negotiating on behalf of other clients can be giving that feedback to their clients? Yeah. I mean, so this is an interesting one because if you're not tuned into your needs, it can actually be hard to articulate them. And so yeah. I think the first thing is it's something we've already talked about. It's using that empathy piece to begin to build trust, to begin to indicate to your client that you understand that this is difficult, that you understand that they have big feelings about it, that you understand that it might be a source of stress for them, showing up for them as a person, and then translating that trust into beginning a sort of line of curious inquiry around what would feel really good as an outcome here. What do you need? Giving them a menu of possible needs, too, can be a powerful thing. You know, I think we think about it in terms of these are the remedies available to us. But let's mm -hmm. translate it for the individual in, are you looking for justice? Are you mm -hmm. looking for an apology? Are you looking to be made whole for compensation? Mm -hmm. And then what's the most important? What would feel most satisfying? And what's right. interesting in the coaching conversations I've been a part of, there are definitely people who just want to be respected and apologized to. 
it's not really about the money. And I think we make this assumption in our society because we're capitalists that money is the biggest driver. And for some people it is, and for some people it isn't. I don't know that it's just capitalism per se. Yeah, that was okay, unfair. To blame. No, 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 no. I understand. I'm not trying to nitpick on you. <laughs> um, but something you said earlier where we focus on remedies, especially as attorneys involved in a dispute, there are prescribed solutions, right? Yep. And so often, especially the legal system is focused on reducing those prescribed solutions to commodities such as dollars. The court cannot order someone to apologize and mean it. And the court is not designed for that. It doesn't want to get into that business. Mm -hmm. And so the legal remedies to fall mm -hmm. back on are how do we reduce this down to dollars? Mm -hmm. Ignoring the fact that the, an apology, a heartfelt apology, whether you mean it or not, quite frankly, if you're a good enough actor, <laughs> okay, great. It can be of tremendous dollar value. Yes, absolutely. Right? There's a, a lot of situations where that can prevent getting into the lawsuit to begin with. Yes. Right? Yes. And that can save you money as yes. well. Uh, yes. Right? So there's very practical uses for all of this yes. above and beyond the obvious benefits. Yeah. And I think it's just being able to recognize as humans, but as attorneys in this context, when it is a complaint and when it is a request. And so just to mm -hmm. like put some clarity on that, I mean, a complaint is when you're pointing out something is wrong, but you're not offering any sort of solution. When a request is very specific, it's very actionable, and it's a very clear statement of what you need, right? Mm. So you don't spend enough time with me, taking it out of the legal mm -hmm. context, is a complaint. Yeah, yeah. I feel disconnected from you and I need to be able to talk to you every day for five minutes. At the end of the day, in the middle of the day, in the beginning of the day, it doesn't matter. But I need to check in with you and I need you to check in with me. That's an actionable request. Mm. Talk to mm -hmm. me more sounds like a request, but it's actually just a complaint in disguise because it's not actionable. Does that make sense? Right. I, I think so. I think I'm understanding. Yeah. So I guess I guess said another way, it's just about making it specific enough that somebody could take it and do something with it and know when they've succeeded. Without you telling them, that's enough talking to me, I feel now connected to you. They would know, right. I checked in with you. For, I mean, I'm oversimplifying, but I checked in with yeah. you for five minutes every day this week. I have given you what you need in or what you have asked for in terms of connection. Now, that was, that was sufficient. That addressed the need. Or perhaps it didn't address the need. I thought it was going to address the need to have that five minutes of connection each day. But no, it turns out it wasn't sufficient. It turns out I also need hugs or I also need it to be face to face exactly. or I also need whatever else. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yep. Right. But I do think that we in a professional context in terms of negotiation, we shy away from that of what are your needs mm -hmm. because how much of that can I be fulfilling? And there's also the flip side of as counsel, if you're talking with a client and you talk about potential outcomes. As an attorney, if this doesn't work out in mediation, we can go to court, we can go to trial. I know what I can be delivering there. Mm -hmm. Okay. I don't know that I can deliver an apology. Correct. I don't know that I can ever make that happen. So why do I want to discuss that and bring that up for the client and create that risk if it's not going to be plausible? 
Why do you want to do that? Because you need to know how they value things, how they value the remedies you can achieve, mm. right? You need to That's know it. that at the end of the day, if you get them the money, they will not be as satisfied as if they got an apology or that the amount of money can come down if there is some room for some emotional connection with the other party. You need to know right. that as the attorney because it gives, in my mind, it gives you some negotiating power and it gives you a sense of how Absolutely. to get the best possible outcome given what you can achieve for that client. Rather than just focusing on the dollars and driving towards trial and a judgment, if instead we drive, and you're going to use some of the same tools, yes. right? You're still going to be using the same discovery tools, the same deposition techniques so as to drive the other side to the table in that mediation. But if you know that a goal is let's get to mediation with a mediator who can sell an apology here, that's going to get my client happier than necessarily the dollar amount. Yes. And it's going to give the room. I mean, it gives you room for negotiation. I mean, I don't know. It just, I think it just creates, it gives you a fuller picture of the boundaries of your playing field than if you ignore that question. Right. You have more options. And with those options, create different pathways to a solution. Yes. That's going to get that resolution. And look, yeah. you're a good lawyer, right? So you're out there mm -hmm. also telling your client, I cannot make anyone order anyone to apologize. I can't promise right. I will deliver that, but it helps me to know what you really need so that we can put it all in context and figure out how to get as close to that as possible. It's interesting. This has been very interesting for me, I, I'll say, in terms of just thinking through all these permutations, some thoughts that I've had in otherwise that I haven't necessarily put words around before, but also the implications. So thinking about this more broadly, it's something where these are techniques that can provide you both the strength at those key moments in a negotiation or in a dispute when you need that strength to get over the hump, so yep. to speak, yep. but also earlier on because it can be laying the groundwork for an, a resolution actually happening, Yeah, whether it's through settlement or otherwise, Yeah, right? Saving everyone a lot of time, money, and heartache. You got it. I think that's right. Yep. Great. Well, Becky, I want to thank you for your time, but before I let you go, I do have a bit of a curveball I want to throw Ooh, I like at a you. curveball. Yeah. I like to end with a question. So as, a, as an attorney, mm -hmm. a fellow attorney, even if you're not necessarily litigating anymore these days, I'm sure you've had situations where in pop culture, whether in film or otherwise, you've encountered something where unfortunately that lawyer part of your brain cannot be turned off and causes you to step out of the suspension of disbelief <laughs> required. That only happens like every time I turn on the TV, but yeah, cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, what, well, tell me one or two, if, if you have it, of your favorite moments where being an attorney ha has gotten in the way of your enjoying a movie or TV show or otherwise. I mean, I don't know if I have like, so I'm bad at, at moments, but I'll say this. So I know that the, the show Suits has had a bit of a resurgence, right? Because it's an older yes. show. And I watched it way back in the, closer to when it was 
like actually coming out. And I told my kids they should watch it and that they would like it. And they, of course, said no. And then like probably two months ago, my son, who was 16, which tells you everything you need to know, um, <laughs> came downstairs and was like, dude, I found the best. No, actually, he said, brah, brah. I found the best show. And I was like, oh, great. What is it? He's like, it's Suits. I'm like, right. Okay. And so we've had a lot of conversations about like, the ways that TV condenses very complicated legal issues, obviously, into like an hour long show. And there's mm-hmm. always some like gotcha hook. And I think, right. you know, look, I went to law school a minute ago and I feel like I should know better by now. Not and that long ago. Yeah. Though. I, I mean, mean, like a yeah, minute. I'm young. Yes, so clearly so young. if we went together. <laughs> yeah. But it like I feel like I should know better. And yet sometimes I find myself getting sucked into this like sort of legal drama. And I have this internal tension of like, no, that's not how it works. And then yeah. also sometimes when I was in the litigation space, like you're you're kind of looking for that like gotcha, that like cool dramatic mm. moment. And mm-hmm. just to remind yourself that it's not actually always that interesting or dramatic or that much of a gotcha. And that actually some of the biggest ahas come when we lean into the humanity of the moment. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'll say in response to your question, which was probably not yeah. responsive and you can strike it if you want, <laughs> but that's my answer. All right. Well, well, then we'll go with it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Before but before I let you go, one last thing though, uh, Becky, is there anything that you're working on at the moment that our listeners should know about or where they can follow up to learn more about you or your work? Sure. So the quickest, easiest way to find me is to head to my website. That is untanglehappiness.com. And a couple of things I'll highlight. I mean, you can learn about my work. You can connect with me on social. And you can also find a link to buy my book, which is called The Happiness Recipe. And so if you're curious about some of those sort of everyday things that we referenced earlier in this episode Mm -hmm. as ways to kind of increase your daily happiness, that's the place to start is that book. Great. Well, thanks again for your time. Appreciate it. And uh, it's been a a very interesting conversation. Awesome. Thanks. I appreciate you. Thanks for tuning in. If you found our show valuable, please subscribe to our YouTube channel for exclusive video content. We love hearing our listeners' thoughts and suggestions on guests or topics for future episodes. So please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or comment on Spotify, and we will catch you on the next one.